chapter 4. If you've got a Bible there, James chapter 4, and from verse 6. Verse 6. Okay, so as we had in uh, our studies of Ezra, and even as we've had a couple of times already in in our sermon series looking at the letter of James, so tonight we've got another one of those to be continued moments, you know. Tonight we've got another one of those follow-ups or, or sequels, if you like. Because this passage of scripture, from 6 to 10, it is, um, what we say, integrally connected to what we uh, looked at before, to the passage of scripture that we looked at, not last week, two weeks ago. And I won't put you on the spot, okay? Um, but can you remember... Uh, what that portion of scripture was all about. Two weeks ago, we looked at Christian infighting. That's what we looked at. We looked at Christian squabbling and bickering in the church. And we saw that that often comes from problems with passions, problems with a kind of selfish desire that we have. And we saw that it comes from uh, the problem of a lack of prayer, didn't we? And then we saw that it also comes, squabbling comes from pollution from the world. And crucially, this is the main thing here, crucially we ended with verse 6. Last week or two weeks ago, we ended that sermon with verse 6. And that's important because not only did verse 6 end that portion of scripture that looks at Christian infighting, Verse 6 also kicks off tonight. You know, verse 6 is the kind of launch pad for what we're going to look at. Verse 6, certainly the second half of verse 6, if you like, it's the kind of caption for for what we're going to do tonight. Look at the second part of verse 6. This is the phrase. Get this phrase. God gives grace. To who? To the humble. God gives grace to the humble. That is the core. That's everything about tonight's sermon. God gives grace to the humble. Okay. And we see that that idea of humility, that idea of submission, we see that that is the sort of main theme here. We see it in the way that this section of scripture that James has written, we see it in the way that this section is constructed. Now, I know, whenever a minister or a pastor talks about, you know, technical stuff like how a section is, is, is constructed, a section of scripture is put together, some people sort of develop narcolepsy and, 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 uh, and fall asleep. But I would urge you not to do that. Because what we've got is just a really, just a straightforward thing here. What we see is what's called... An inclusio. An inclusio, where the beginning and the end of a section of scripture are saying the same thing. Do you see that? The beginning and the end are saying the same thing. Look, look at the, the beginning of the section in verse 7. Do you see that? Verse 7. It says, submit yourselves to God. Okay? Now look to the end of the section... 
and look at verse 10. You see it? We've had submit yourselves to God. Now what do we have? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Submit yourselves. Humble yourselves. You see it? They're really, really similar. It's the same idea in the Greek. Both verses are calling for humility. Both verses are calling for us to, to, to actively put ourselves under the Lordship of Christ. To actively do that. They're both calling for us to humble ourselves in every area of our lives. And what we're going to do tonight, for a short time together, is going to sound crazy. Because what we're going to do is we are going to look at the stuff on the shelf. The stuff on the shelf. You see, we've seen that there are bookends. Yeah? We've seen that there is a beginning and an end here, and that they're saying the same thing. Well, what we're going to do is not look at the bookends. We're going to look at the stuff on the shelf. We're going to look at the stuff that is in the middle of the section. We're going to look at the meat of the section. Why? Because what we learn here is the how-to of the section. We learn in the middle portion how to submit to God. We learn how to actively submit to him and seek humility. So we'll look at the stuff on the shelf, the middle section. And what we'll do to do that predictably is look at three points, three aspects from these verses. So let's pause and take a deep breath. And let's examine these verses together. Okay, how do we submit ourselves to God? How do we submit ourselves to God? The first aspect, we refuse our adversary. That's what we do. We refuse our adversary. A long time ago, year 400 and 80 BC the king of Persia who we've heard about before Xerxes he had a great idea he thought what he would do is amass a huge army a massive army and Xerxes decided I'm going to set sail and I'm going to invade and conquer Greece I'm pretty sure lots of people here will know the story of what happened the Persian army arrived they hit Greece And they got to this uh, small section of land called Thermopylae. And they were met by this very small band of Greek soldiers. About, what we're talking about, maybe 7,000 Greek soldiers apparently, okay? And then a battle ensues. 7,000 Greeks against 150,000 or thereabout Persians. And do you know what happened? Despite this numeric disadvantage... The Greeks, they repelled and they opposed this invading army. The Battle of Thermopylae is an example of opposition to a mighty, mighty foe. And it's the very same thing here in James, isn't it? Because the the first thing that James teaches us about submitting to God, the first thing he does is give us a picture of war. You know, he, he, 
the imagery is war imagery. The, the terminology is war terminology. You know, effectively what he says is if you want to, to, to humble yourself before God, if you want to submit to him, guess what? That is going to involve a battle. It's going to involve a battle against a mighty foe. It's going to involve a battle between the followers of Christ and Satan. And with that, again, we're back to this, you know, this reality of satanic attack, aren't we? The reality of satanic attack. Now, we've seen that. If you've been in the morning services over the last few months, we've seen that time and time again in Genesis, haven't we? The reality of a satanic attack. And we see it here again. Because look at the word that James uses here. What's the word? The word is resist. Resist the devil. Now, if we're going to resist the devil, that implies something. If you resist something, then something comes at you, doesn't it? To resist something, something must be attacking you. Now, folks, let's be honest here. Other denominations, other professing Christians perhaps, have a more well-rounded, a deeper, a more effective theology in this stuff than we do. I'll tell you this, we as Christians, we must grasp and appreciate the fact that in everything that we do, tonight in church, and in your life tomorrow, and in your workplace, or whatever it is, we must appreciate that there is an unseen, and very often, an underestimated spiritual battle going on. There is a spiritual battle going on. Okay. So we, we get it. We see that there is a, folks, a, 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 the reality of satanic attack. But okay, how do we respond to the fact that Satan is going to come at us? How do we respond to that sort of opposition? Well, well the words resist, isn't it? The words resist. Now that takes us back to Thermopylae, doesn't it? It takes us back to that sort of small Greek army that we're talking about. Because what did they do? They resisted. They kind of, if you like, they drew a line in the sand, those 7,000 people. And they said, well, that's fine, but we are going to stand here. And we're going to take it. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to oppose this invading, advancing army. And really that is... The example we have here. Satan is going to come at us. And we are not to embrace that invasion. We are to stand our ground and oppose our foe. Sounds okay. But I hear you ask, how does that work practically? Practically speaking, how do we resist the devil? Well, have you, have you followed the news this week? You've been plugged into the BBC website. If you have, you'll know that, I think it was just a few days ago, that Elmore Leonard died at the age of 87, I think the guy was. Leonard was the author of a number of books, crime fiction, I think, and some westerns and that sort of thing. So 
I read a few tributes, the obituary and all that sort of thing, to, to Elmore Leonard. And you know, each of the tributes, I read about three or four tributes to the guy, to this author, and each of them actually said the very same thing. They all said that for any kind of uh, wannabe or budding novelist, any wannabe writer out there, then Elmore Leonard was a cracking example to follow. He was a great example to follow. And you know what? That's the sort of thing that Scripture does for us when it comes to resisting the devil. Scripture gives us examples to follow. What do I mean? Well, in First Peter, letter, First Peter, in particular, First Peter 5, what we've got is a, a, a kind of mirror image of these verses in James. And I would encourage everyone, when you go home, you a spare couple of minutes, compare James 4 and 1 Peter 5. It's a mirror image, it's a parallel passage. And folks, just listen to this. This is what Peter says uh, about resisting the devil. 1 Peter 5, just listen to this. He says, resist your enemy. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, do you see what Peter is saying there? You know, he's saying that we should be encouraged to fight off the devil. We should be encouraged to take a a stand against the devil. Why? Because all over the world, other believers are going through the same attacks and the same temptations that we're going through. And guess what? They are being given the power to oppose. They are coming through these attacks and through these temptations. So scripture gives us the example of other believers to follow when the devil attacks us. But come on. You know, your, your mind's going to the same place as mine, isn't it? When it comes to resisting the devil, Scripture gives us the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? You know, think about the temptations of Jesus Christ. Think about the fact that Jesus stood firm, you know? Jesus resisted the devil when the devil came at him with everything that he had. You know, he came at him. And he came at him again. And friends, see what that victory, Christ's victory over Satan means for us. It means that unlike Thermopylae, where the Greeks were actually, they took a good stand against these Persians, you know, the 7,000 Greeks, that they were ultimately defeated. Well, unlike Thermopylae, Because of what Christ has done, we now have the power in him to oppose the devil. We can resist our adversity. And I'll tell you this, look, look at the great promise we have if we do that. Do you see it? Look at the rest of verse 7. What does it say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
He will. Promised, he will flee from you. So friends, let's be, this week, go out in the world, let's be prayerfully aware that there is a spiritual battle going on. But let's also resolve to resist the devil and to bow to the authority of God. Okay. Refuse our adversity. Okay, let's think about the next thing. Let's think about the fact that if we're going to submit to God, we must also return to our king. Return to our king. And and the first point there, I took you back in history. I took you back in time, didn't I? Back to 480 BC or whenever it was. For this point, let me take you back, not quite as far back in time. Let me take you back to 1863. Let's go to America and a speech by Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And this was a speech given on the American National Day of Prayer. Okay, so this is what Lincoln said in that day. He said, this is good words from Lincoln. He said, We Americans have grown in number, wealth, and power, as no other nation has. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand that preserves us. Then listen to what he said next. He said, let us then change and let us humble ourselves before the offended power and let us confess our sin and let us pray for forgiveness. That was Abraham Lincoln. Now, I reckon you could say that Abraham Lincoln could quite easily have lifted that, have stolen it, have derived it at least from the book of James because... James is saying the same thing here, isn't he? Verse 8, James says that submission to God, it only comes when we draw near to God. See verse 8, do you see it? It says, come near to God. And again, if you like, the, the word he uses is important. And the word before was resist the devil. This time the word's different. It's come near to God. Come near to God. Now, that word in the Old Testament was the idea of drawing near to God or coming near to God in worship. You know, think about it. The people of God in the temple would have come near to God. That's not what James is saying at all. Not a bit of it. This idea here is more like a return to God. He's writing to Christians. Remember this, these Christians scattered all, all over the place? And he's encouraging them to return. Return to God. Do you know what this is? It is a call to repentance. That's what it is. And look how he uh, look how he enhances that call to repentance. What does he go on to say? He says, "Come near to God." And then, how does he say that we do that? Come near to God. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your your hearts. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. You know what he's saying? Repent with an internal and an external. 
external repentance. This is a, a call to complete holistic change. Your hands, your heart. I'll tell you what this is. This is a clarion call from James. It is a call to wake up and put off our wickedness and return to God. But again, the question is always the same. It is, how do we apply it? A call to change, a call to come near to God, how do we apply it? Um, Well, what newspaper do you read over the weekend? Are you Guardian readers? Are there Sun readers? Um, I do hope not. Um, Well, if you get the Times and you read the Times magazine, you'll perhaps be familiar with Caitlin Moran's weekly column, journalist in the Times magazine. And you know, she's, the last few weeks, she's always banging on about what's called the 5-2 diet. The 5-2 diet. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. But it's the latest craze, basically, in, in trying to try to lose weight. 5-2 diet. Five days of the week, you are able to eat pretty much whatever you want. Okay? So it appeals to a lot of people. But the other two days of the week, effectively, you fast. Here? Five, two, diet. Are you a five, two Christian? Are you? Five days of the week? Are you feasting on everything that the world has to offer? And yet you're only giving a portion, a small part of your week over to God? Are you? Are you perhaps a a backslidden Christian tonight? Some people don't like that, that, that term, but is that what you are? backslidden you know can you look back to a a time where you were spiritually vibrant you know you were so excited about your faith and is that time gone are you now somebody who is spiritually dry or spiritually lifeless well if you are do you know what James says here in in these verses he says get a grip That's what James says here. He says, come near to God. That is his plea. Now, friend, do you want to do that tonight? Do you want to end that spiritual desert and come back to God? I'll tell you this, that that doesn't just happen. You you don't just say a a quick half-hearted prayer and suddenly things are great. You know, you're going to have to Go home. And you're going to have to get your Bible out. And you're going to have to read it. And you have to do that tomorrow. And you're going to have to get down on your knees. And you're going to have to pray more than you have been praying. And you're going to have to pray by yourself. Close that bedroom door and pray. But you're also going to have to pray with the people you live with. Pray with your family. And you're going to have to pray with your church. With your congregation. Now I ask you... Do you want to do that? And I ask you, will you do that? Because 
Look again at what is on offer. It is amazing. Look at verse 8. Come near to God. And what's going to happen? Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it? That spiritual life can be reignited. Come near to God. Okay. So we've seen the whole thing's about humbling ourselves before God. We've seen that. We've seen if we want to do that, if we're going to submit to God, then we have to resist that enemy. And that we have to change our ways, James says, and we have to come back to God on bended knee. Let's end. Third thing. We must also regret our wickedness. We must regret our wickedness. Now, again, I'm basing my illustrations on what's happening in the news, it seems. But, you know, if you've had the BBC website, you've had the, the news on, then you know that the world just now is an increasingly violent place. Think about some of the stuff that we've seen over the last few days. The chemical attacks in Syria and what about Egypt and then the the violence and the atrocities that are happening in some parts of Africa. And You know, if truth be told, sometimes we can find ourselves becoming hardened to that, can't we? You know, we've got the news on and there's a story of another car bombing in the Middle East. And you know, we've heard that so often that it's almost like it goes in one ear and out the other. We don't react properly to a scene of wickedness. And as James closes here, that's what he warns us of. He warns us that as Christians, we can react incorrectly to our own sin and to our own wickedness. Look what he says in verse 9 here. He says, verse 9, please have a look if your Bibles are open. He says, we should, Christians should, you should, grieve, mourn, and wail as we consider our sin. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Now, we saw that in the last series that we looked at in, in the evening, didn't we? Do you remember that? In Ezra, we were looking at. We, we saw Ezra pull out his beard and uh, pull out his hair. He grieved, he mourned, he wailed. He did that because of sin. That was the common Old Testament reaction to sin amongst the prophets. But it's also the same in the New Testament, isn't it? Think about First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul rebukes the people in Corinth and he says, you shouldn't be taking pride in your sin. No, you should be mourning over it. The word he uses is grieve. You should be grieving over your sin. And it's that same consistent biblical reaction to sin that James is reasserting here. He's saying, he's saying, friends, you want to submit to God? 
Well, guess what's going to happen? If you want to humble yourself before God, do you know what that will be accompanied by? In fact, do you know what that will be preceded by? If we're going to humble ourselves before God, that will be preceded by anguish. Sorrow at our own wickedness. Sorrow at our own sin. And again, how do we apply that? You know, ask yourself, you know, what what does this call to grieve and mourn mean? Practically speaking. You know, when James says, what does he say? When he says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, we've got to sort of cut about the place and walk about the place looking really sad all the time as Christians? Is that what he's calling for? Change your laughter to gloom? Is he saying that when we come to church that we've just got a grimace and look intensely miserable the whole time? Is that, is that what James is saying? No. That's not what James is saying. Do you know what James is doing? He is throwing us back to something else that he's already said in this chapter. He's throwing us back to this idea of friendship with the world. You see, the world laughs at sin, doesn't it? The world, it takes sin lightly. You know that, don't you? You know, your colleagues tomorrow morning, they don't see the gravity of offending God. Think about London, you know, it's almost like immorality is a kind of badge of honour in a city, isn't it? It's almost like immorality is a kind of competition. You know, the people around us, they're trying to be immoral quickly and they're trying to be the most immoral person. And what James is saying here is he's saying that that attitude out there can infiltrate us. That attitude, that carefree attitude to sin, it can infiltrate the heart of the Christian. And so, I ask you, in all seriousness, I ask you, have the sins, your sins, of the last few days, have they really played in your mind? You know, just now as you consider the sins of your last week, does your heart fill with anguish and sorrow? Does your sin, does it breed a sense of almost loss and mourning? Do you grieve over it? And if you don't, is it perhaps the case that you have become hardened to your own scene of wickedness? He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. So tonight, we have seen the how-to of submission. We're to resist the devil, come near to God, and grieve over our sin. I just want to end with this. I want to end with a reminder of who it is that we are to submit ourselves to. Who are we to submit ourselves to? 
Well, what are we? We are Christians. And it is to Jesus Christ that we must bow. And we began our service. What was the song? We began singing tonight with Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And that's a psalm that speaks of the one to whom God has given authority over all things. The one that the Apostle Paul confirms to be Jesus Christ. He says, everything in heaven and earth. Everything in heaven and in earth is put under his authority. And if we bow to him, if we bow tonight to Jesus Christ in submission, what's going to happen? Well, look, look how it ends in verse 10. In verse 10, we're told that if we humble ourselves, Christ will lift us up. We will be lifted up if we humble ourselves. If we bow before God, Christ will lift us up. And do you know what will happen? We will receive the promise that we started the sermon with. Do you remember that? The promise of verse 6. If we humble ourselves, what happens? God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So I, that's it. That's all we've got. But friends, I'd say to you tonight, don't go out of those doors there and just forget this. You know, don't go out and forget what God has shown us tonight in the book of James. I urge you not to do that. Let's go out. Let's live this out. And let's submit wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.